This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. I'm asking about a specific Crown copyright, and that is the protection and prohibited use of government documents, research, and materials. And I'm asking for your position on that. I don't need the Deputy Minister's position on that. Um, it's um, something that was studied extensively in this House here. It's a well-known fact that Canada um, has a unique system of protection. And I'm, I want to know, uh, you know whether or not you support uh, the status quo of Crown copyright. Um, I think it's a fair question. Thank you, Brian. Um, look, it's an issue that's raised with us all the time. We're aware of the issue and we're reviewing it. that Crown copyright should be completely abolished. That view was shared by many witnesses, and unfortunately recommendations in this report don't go far enough. Content created by taxpayer money should belong to all Canadians, and government should not be able to enforce copyright on those works. The Canadian Copyright Review, conducted earlier this year, heard evidence on a remarkably broad range of issues, probably the most comprehensive review of Canadian copyright law in decades. One issue that seemed to take committee members by surprise was Crown copyright, which captured considerable attention and became the subject of two supplemental opinions from the Conservative and NDP members, as well as the basis for a private member's bill from NDP MP Brian Massey. Why all the interest in Crown copyright? This week's Law Bites podcast digs into Crown copyright with two guests. First, Amanda Wakaruk, a copyright librarian at the University of Alberta and one of the country's leading advocates on the issue, joins me to explain the concept and why she thinks it needs to be abolished. I'm then joined by my colleague, Professor Jeremy DeBeer, to discuss the recent Supreme Court of Canada decision of Keatley Surveying versus Terranet, which was one of the first opportunities for Canada's highest court to grapple with the scope and implications of Crown copyright. Amanda, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So we're going to talk about Crown Copyright. And I guess the starting point for people that don't think a lot about these issues is what is Crown Copyright? Yeah, thanks for making space for this topic. Uh, Section 12 of the Copyright Act provides the government with copyright control over any work that is prepared or published under the direction or control of Her Majesty. So that provision basically gives the government the exclusive legal right to reproduce, publish, or sell a work that was created to support in some way the governance of our country. Okay, so it's Giving the government control over the the works that it creates, how long does it does Crown copyright last? So how long does the government get rights in in its own works? Yeah, if the work is published, and I'm assuming the definition is the one used in the Copyright Act, which is made available to the public, if the work is published, the term extends for 50 years past the year of publication. However, interestingly, if the work is unpublished, or put another way, not originally intended for distribution to the public, the term is perpetual. And and talk to any archivist, and they will tell you that there are millions of unpublished government works sitting in archives across this country that are, are not being digitized because of fear of infringement. 
It's interesting. So the government, that the term effectively unlimited if it's if it's not published, having a real impact almost immediately on on archival access to some of those materials. Uh, I, I know this is a somewhat controversial issue. We've got a case before the Supreme Court of Canada that looks at it, but just how broad are we talking about in terms of government works for coverage of these, for, in terms of its coverage? Well, there's one of the things that came out during the um, the Copyright Act review and the witness testimony and submissions was that there doesn't seem to be a strong uh, understanding or agreement about about that scope. Um, there are some claims that it may or may not protect primary law, um, although we have a reproduction of federal law order, so perhaps it does. I'm not an expert on those points of law, but I can tell you that it certainly covers anything disseminated by the executive branch and uh, the legislative branch materials. So we're talking about House of Commons reports. We're talking about the debates of, of parliament. Um, we're talking about reports. We're talking about Royal Commission transcripts, um, the things that we need to have access to, to have a functioning democracy. Sure. And, and you've mentioned uh, several federal institutions. Does this cover provincial governments as well? There, the copyright law in Canada, is, as you know, and I'm sure many of your listeners know, is under federal jurisdiction, but the enforcement of Crown copyright can be done at either the federal or the provincial level. So the provinces also have the exclusive right to reproduce, produce, or sell works published or prepared at that level. Okay, so we're talking about a really broad range, not just at the federal level, but at the provincial level as well. So how does can the Canadian approach compare with other countries? You know, there isn't a really good comparative uh, study that we have access to that that tells us this in any definitive way. Um, just from you know the little bit of research I've done on this topic, I I um, I think our, our biggest trading partner, the U.S., is is the the one to compare to. Really, they uh, saw fit to remove any copyright protection for federal works way back in 1895. So for my perspective, we're about 120 years behind the U.S. on this particular issue. And as you well know and have talked about on the podcast, Canada is lining up some of our um, Copyright Act provisions in other areas with the U.S. policy. So we're way out of step with our major trading partner there. Are there open licensing alternatives to government works that, that seek to ensure that there's some amount of access? I, I think I need to, to talk uh, instead about the more than 40 years of requests to change the system. Um, you know, it, it doesn't take much work to stumble across things like a 1981 report titled Crown Copyright in Canada, drafted in uh, 1981, as I said, by a government employee. Um, we have House of Commons co uh, committee subcommittee reports from the mid-80s and white papers asking for the uh, abolition of, of Crown copyright, the abolishment of Crown copyright. It, it goes on and, and on. And, you know, in 2013, the Crown Copyright Licensing Unit was actually closed. That was a, a very useful unit. It gave us, as librarians and as citizens, an, um, a place where we could ask for permission to use these works. Um, but that was closed in 2013, and confusion sort of ramped up. Um, about the same time, the government did bring in an open government license. Uh, but by 2016, I want to say December 2016, only 53 publications had actually been assigned an open government license. Uh, the focus was really on data. Uh, today, I think we're closer to 800, but that's uh, 800 publications that have been assigned an actual open government license, which is not without its own flaws. 
But separately, and I, and I think the government was well-intentioned here, they, they tried to bring in terms of use that would hopefully make it clear that people could reuse content. And that was supposed to be adopted across all government websites that at least for the departments that fell into the Treasury Board uh, policy package. But um, but it wasn't consistent. It's not consistent to this day. It excludes commercial uses. And as you've already pointed out, our commercial publishers are a very important partner in the reproduction and dissemination of government information. But the terms of use on government websites excludes them. Um, and actually, if I can really go off off uh, on a tangent here, uh, there was a very recent and very important government report, the Murdered and Missing Indigenous Women and Girls report, that was recently distributed on the open web, which is fantastic. Um, but if you look at it from a copyright perspective, there's no information about reuse at all on that document. And it, I was told, um, someone reached out to me and, and told me that there was a publisher who had actually approached the government to ask about copyright and the ability to publish and sell copies of the work because the demand for the print was so great. And those talks broke down. Now, I don't have the details of that, but if, if those works were in the public domain by default, as they are in the U.S., this wouldn't be an issue, right? So, I mean, there are ways that the government has, has shown intention to open things up, but unfortunately, the application of those policies, the implementation of those policies hasn't resulted in real change on the ground from my perspective. Okay, why don't we talk a bit about that? I mean, it's, an, it's certainly the, that, the, the decades of reports and concerns around these issues, I think, is striking as a set against the relative lack of action other than some of these open licenses that, as you say, have had relatively modest take up to date and has some impact. Can you can you tell me a bit more about why this is a problem, you know, in the sense why should should people care? Is do these open licenses or the existence of crown copyright create significant restrictions to use, reuse either for the public, for archivists uh, or for others? Yeah, that's uh that's there's so many examples that came forth during the Copyright Act review, so I would encourage people to dig into that. I've also provided a list of the people who spoke to who gave examples on my website. Uh, just, you know, there's a redirect fixcrowncopyright.ca. Um but to answer your question directly, there have been so many times where just as an academic librarian, I've had professors, uh, students ask, you know, what happened to this link? Why is it dead? Things disappear from the government website all the time. And that content is, is not necessarily captured or reproduced. To give you a very recent and, and very important example, in 2012, the uh, government saw fit to implement a web renewal initiative that was, you know, aimed at cleaning up the government websites. So I think the 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 press release said, but you know, 50, uh, consolidate the government websites from 1,500 down to six. So that in itself doesn't sound like a bad thing, except the work had already started, um, and librarians scrambling to try and capture this content were often um, hitting robot files, robot.txt files with their web crawlers. And, uh, you know, as, as good, responsible employees of universities, they would ask permission from the rights holder 
to make copies of that web content before it disappeared. And we're um, sometimes told, yeah, you can make those copies and, and sometimes told, or sometimes actually the common response was not a response at all, nothing, you didn't hear anything. And so that stops the work. Um, but sometimes they were told no, and you cannot reproduce and make those works available. And that that's a problem. That resulted in pretty massive losses of government works. And um, I, I know many people will say, well, what about the Internet Archive, right? What about Library and Archives Canada? And Library and Archives Canada at this point in time was itself going through massive reductions. I don't know how many people realize that the the head of the Library and Archives of Canada is a political appointment. And they, of, of course, are sensitive to the political direction that the government in power or the party in power is taking. So LAC was not in a position to jump in and help in that way at that time. And um, the Internet Archive web crawling activities are incredibly important. And I still point, you know, journalists, students to those resources, but they're also superficial. The kind of web crawling that librarians were trying to do uh, is much deeper. We have access to quality assurance, um, you know, procedures that the Internet Archives archive it fee-based service provides. So we can make sure that those PDFs that are four pages down are actually getting picked up and preserved. So there was a lot of cultural loss, a lot of losses of materials, um, you know, everything from ministerial speeches, which is some of the more shocking losses, to um, educational materials. I had, um, not to, you know, point fingers too directly, um, Love Parks Canada, and they had these wonderful educational supplemental guides for, you know, students to learn about their national parks. And those disappeared and were not picked up by LAC or the Internet Archive. I'm, I'm still fielding calls from people who are asking for Revenue Canada documents. The Standing Committee on Industry Science and Technology, which conducted the copyright review, spent a fair amount of time both looking at it, and it certainly got addressed, both by the report as well as by some of the opposition parties. So what did they find and what did they recommend when it came to the issue? You know, I spent a considerable amount of time watching testimony um, that was made available through Parlview and reading submissions with an eye to monitor the Crown copyright scenario. And it was really heartening to see so many people spend so many time, so much time and effort talking about it, and and to see our MPs from all parties. And I want to stress that MPs from all parties asked questions about Crown copyright and appeared engaged and interested and increasingly knowledgeable about the issue. That was incredibly heartening. So when I read pages 43 to 46 of the report, which I've got here in front of me, um, I, it it started out good. I mean, the, the heading is Crown Copyright, and they rightly state that no witnesses supported its content continuation, at least in current form. And I'm quoting here, a rare point of consensus. So there's recognition here that the witnesses were pretty much on the same page in terms of asking for changes to the current Crown copyright regimes. But then when you get into the section headed um, committee observations and recommendations, there is this, to my eye anyway, a, a real disconnect between 
what the MPs asked and heard and um, and what's on the page, because it dives right into the Keatley serving case. And, it, and I'm quoting here, the Keatley serving case reveals that Crown copyright serves two distinct functions. Well, I didn't know the case was finished, first of all. And I can only assume they're speaking to what they heard through the intervener's statements, which seems odd to me, but I'm no lawyer. Um, it, so that's odd right away. And I, I did go back and look, and I didn't really see any witnesses refer to Keatley except Mr. DeBeer and perhaps one other person in passing. So it was very odd that this is where the focus is. Um, but they go on to say that because of that case, they now understand, I guess, that the first function of Crown Copyright is to assert ownership over works. Okay. The second function allows Canadian governments to disseminate works they do not own. Okay. Okay. If you jump down to the recommendations, the legislative amendment that's proposed seems to be giving the government more power, not less. And in the quoting here, that the government of Canada introduced the Copyright Act to provide that no Canadian government or person authorized by a Canadian government infringe copyright when committing an act. And it goes on. So my read of that is that they're giving themselves the, you know, they're indemnifying themselves from being sued for using other people's work, which has nothing to do with Crown Copyright. Why is it in this section of the report? Now, I have to say this, this, uh, you mentioned some access to information requests earlier on, and, and this, I think, in some ways highlights the commonality between control of government information through Crown Copyright and then control of it through various other means of disclosure, such as through access to information. And I think what we often see is that when parties are on, in opposition, as, as we see even in, the, in this report, they're all for greater openness and disclosure. Once they form the government, suddenly they kind of back away from that. And I must admit, I, that's, that's how I read this recommendation. I read this recommendation to say, we'd like to see something take place. And so... We'd like to move towards a more open license kind of approach, and that's certainly part of what they tried to adopt. But that was seen as a bit of a compromise position between what I take it are internal concerns about a more open approach or complete abolition, and on the one hand, and what they actually heard from witnesses, which was by and large a call for abolition which I think speaks to ultimately one of the real challenges that we face with this issue, because now I think, as with access to information, we often get opposition parties calling for greater openness and transparency, greater use by the public. But once these parties come into government, suddenly they identify reservations or concerns. I don't know how much of that is being driven by bureaucrats, how much of that is being driven by political considerations. But regardless, this has proven to be a more intractable issue than we might have otherwise expected. Yeah, so so where do we go from here? I mean, the other part of the recommendation that I did not read out is um, about managing Crown copyright. And and just to give people context, it, it, it says that the government of Canada improved Crown copyright management policies and practices, which sounds great, 
by adopting open licenses in line with the open government and data governance agenda. And it goes on to qualify that um, by saying that things that are published in the public interest and for the purpose of public use, education, research, or information, which are qualifications that, that you know, we never heard from any of the witnesses. And, and I guess, you know, it hasn't come up yet on the podcast here, but the Access to Information Act includes pretty broad statements about ex- things that are excluded from ATI and things that are accepted from that process. So the government has a lot of controls already through the Access to Information Act. And I think the control that the public deserves to use the material that is created in the public interest also needs to be in legislation. And they've stayed away from that. They aren't recommending legislative changes. My read of that first part of the recommendation on, on the existing system, which no one said is working. Following up on that, the the Canadian Library and Archival Community has written a response. I think they generally like much of what the committee had to say, but they quite clearly were disappointed, as, as we've been talking about, with the Crown Copyright recommendations. What did they have to say in, in their letter to the government? Yeah, the uh, I, I want to first note that that this um, this letter is available on the Canadian Association of Research Libraries website, and it's actually been signed by nine different um, associations, uh, library and archive associations in Canada, and that I don't I can't remember ever seeing a statement come out with that many voices. I mean, this is representing a wide swath of of your cultural memory stewards, Canadians. Um, so. They, they did ask for the government to continue to study this. So further study on this topic. Um, I would have liked to have seen further independent study, but um, further study by the government is what's been asked for. And uh, they want the government to address six points. I, I'm not going to list them. They're quite verbose. But in general, they want an environmental scan conducted, and, and that should include um, documenting what's happening here in Canada at both the federal and provincial level. That should include uh, documenting and considering what's been happening around the world and and boy do we need a comprehensive study in a, of a comparative systems um, so that those are the main asks and they make it clear that they want that process to include stakeholders for all the stakeholders all the relevant stakeholders and my read of that is that that would include government employees I have heard from so many government employees over the year that say their work is hampered by crown copyright and are frustrated because they're trying to do good work and share that work and and, um, and they're bumping up against this. The process would include um, all stakeholders. And at the end of the day, what they what this letter is really asking for is legislative amendments, legislative amendments that will transform an outdated provision. Amanda, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. It's my pleasure. So I spoke earlier in the podcast with Amanda Wakaruk, who explained what Crown Copyright is and why she's been very active advocating for reforms. But the open question when I spoke to her was the Keatley case. We had an outstanding case before the Supreme Court focusing on Crown Copyright. That decision's now been rendered, and I'm glad you're joining me on the podcast to talk a bit about that case and what it means for copyright, and in particular, Crown Copyright. Why don't we start there? Can you provide me a bit of a background on the case itself? Well, sure. First, I'll give you the takeaway. It 
puts the ball squarely in Parliament's court to act on Crown copyright um, and to update what the Supreme Court highlighted was a century-old provision. Um, and both the majority and minority opinions focused on the, the need to reconsider this issue in, in a broader context. So what was the case about? Well, as, you, as your listeners will know, Keatley surveying is a class action brought by surveyors against a partner of the government of Ontario called Terranet. Terranet is a company that digitized and provides access to digital copies of plans of survey. Plans of survey are essentially uh, maps that mark the boundaries of people's property rights in the province of Ontario. So Terranet digitized these surveys and provided access to the public. The surveyors weren't getting paid when Terranet sells access to these, these surveys. And so they brought an action for copyright infringement. Terranet's first defense, or one of their key defenses, was that the surveyors don't actually own their copyrights. The Ontario government does by virtue of this provision in the Copyright Act, Crown Copyright. Okay, so we've got these land surveyors who make who file these land surveys with the government, the provincial government in Ontario proceeds to make them available to this company, Terranet. They digitize them. I assume Terranet then goes ahead and makes that available on a subscription type service or electronically. They're profiting from it. The government presumably is making some money out of this by way of the licensing fees that I assume they get or the license they have with Terranet. Surveyors turn around and say, we're the only ones not getting anything out of this. They launch a class action lawsuit. Okay, so Terranet argues that they're entitled to make these copies and make this available because of Crown Copyright? Yeah, Terranet believes or submits to the court. Yeah, Terranet argues that it's allowed to provide these surveys to the public because the government of Ontario licenses it to do so. And the government of Ontario, by virtue of Crown Copyright, is the copyright owner. So that raises the issue for the Supreme Court, what exactly is the scope of Crown Copyright? The controversy centered around the ability of the government to acquire somebody else's copyright merely by making available the work on its own website or on digital platforms run by its partners, in this case, Terranet. So nobody doubted that when the government creates its own works, official government works that are prepared by the government, employees or departments, that those would be subject to Crown copyright. Whether that should be the case or not is a different issue we can come to later. But the question was, what about when the government merely publishes somebody else's work? Can the government get your copyright in that situation? And the Supreme Court unanimously said yes, but split four to three over precisely how and why that happens. Okay, so we've got a Crown copyright provision in the law that says the government owns copyright in certain works. Terranet arguing that this can be ex this this will include or can include or does include, I suppose, uh, works that are submitted in the way that. The surveyors would be submitting it. The surveyors, of course, arguing that, well, Crown Copyright should not be covering those kinds of works that get submitted. You've just told us that the Supreme Court of Canada, two decisions, two written decisions, but unanimously hold that Crown Copyright does cover this. So how did they arrive at that conclusion? Okay, so the 
court sets out the test for when the government can acquire someone else's copyright by virtue of publishing it. The court split over what is necessary for the government to acquire someone else's copyright. The majority of four judges agreed with reasons written by Justice Abella. And she said it all depends on the degree of direction or control that the government has over the publication process. The more direction or control the government has over the process of publishing the work, the more likely it is that the Crown has acquired copyright. Now, in this case, the Crown had complete control over the process of publishing the work. According to the majority of the court, there was a comprehensive statutory scheme in Ontario that set the rules requiring surveyors to comply with certain form and content obligations, saying that once a surveyor submits the property or submits the property survey to the uh, land titles office, the surveyor can't change it anymore. Only government officials have the power to change it, saying that property rights in the survey itself, the physical survey itself, vest in the crown. And so these and other factors led the majority to say that, that the government had complete control over the plans of survey and the process of publishing them. And because of that sufficient degree of control and direction and control, Justice Abella said that the Crown acquires copyright. While the majority of the court said everything depends on the degree of direction and control that the government has over the publication process, there were three judges who agreed in the result but would have applied a different test. And those three judges, in reasons authored by Justice, Justices Cote and Brown, said that the idea of a looking at the degree of control was too impracticable, impractical, that it would create instability in the law of Crown copyright because you never know how much direction and control is enough. So the concurring judges would instead say it really depends on direction and control over the worker, not the work, over the person who's publishing the works, not in this case, the surveys themselves. And so they would look at the relationship between the government and its partner, Terranet, who's making the surveys available online. But they imposed an additional requirement that the Crown can only get copyright in so-called government works. And they defined government works as works that serve a public purpose, where it's necessary to use copyright to ensure accuracy and integrity and appropriate levels of dissemination, ensuring that it's accessible where it needs to be, but not improperly disseminated um, where, where accuracy and integrity are potentially compromised. And so for the minority, it was all about whether these are government works or not. For the majority, it was about whether there's direction or control over the process of publication. Okay, so we've got a majority focusing it sounds like very much on the plain language of the statute saying this is what the statute says about control. We think there is control. That's good enough. The concurrence and the minority 
sort of recognize or come to or of the view that this is problematic because that's pretty broad that can be pretty broad in scope as this case would highlight and so try to read in some limitations and it sounds like their their core limitation is to talk about government works and create their own definition for what that means beyond what we would think is the obvious when it comes to government work so that broader public interest side where government control seems or some would argue is appropriate yeah i guess two two nuances the complaint that the minority had was not about the breadth of the majority's interpretation but about the unpredictability of the majority's interpretation the minority concern concern was that the test is just unworkable in practice it's not that it's too broad or too narrow it's that we don't know when it applies to all kinds of other works and so now we can imagine intellectual property applications filed with the Canadian Intellectual Property Office or securities prospectuses filed with provincial or federal um, regulators or pleadings uh, from lawyers submitted to courts and then made available on court websites. In all of these situations and many others, Canadians now need to ask themselves, does the government have, quote, sufficiently extensive, end quote, control over the process of making these available online? And how that applies in any particular case is, is really anyone's guess. So there's a huge practical takeaway here for for Canadians that anytime anybody submits a document that the government later puts online or publishes now needs a legal opinion on whether there's sufficient degree, uh, direction and control over that process where the person might lose their copyright to the government. So that was the real concern of the minority. Okay. And by the sounds of it, you're, you'd share those concerns about how workable the majority's interpretation of crown copyright is I, I i do share those concerns and um in our submissions for the canadian internet policy and public interest clinic cipic which i represented as an intervener in the court we raised those concerns about the unpredictability or unworkability of this you know spectrum of degree of direction and control and three of the judges really picked up on that and 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 saw the saw the concerns the the second nuance is that the majority interpreted this provision not based on the plain language, but with some linguistic gymnastics. They actually um, sort of twisted the plain language of the act to avoid having an overbroad interpretation where the government would get copyright anytime they merely made somebody's work available online without direction or control. If you look at the words of the provision, they might suggest that the government can get your copyright anytime the government puts your work on, on the internet. And and the, the court kind of ignored the plain language to say that would be too broad. They wanted to stick with a narrow approach. So it sounds like we've got real challenges from, from an interpretation perspective, really in either case. I mean, in a sense, the court's face, facing a provision that I know you've noted and many others have noted, sometimes referred to as a legislative monstrosity. It's been around for decades or more and many, many decades and doesn't necessarily reflect the way that we think of information today, information submitted to government. And of course, left with trying to come up with something. Obviously, you on behalf of CIPIC provided some possibilities, but both the majority and the concurrence 
try to to find a way through this and, and ultimately struggle to come up with something that is truly workable in kind of the modern world. That's right, Michael. So where we're at is we have a Supreme Court decision that split four to three, which struggles with some very awkward statutory language. Uh, all of the judges aren't able to interpret it based on the plain reading of the words because that would be so problematic. And so both uh, the minority and the majority reasons come up with a proposed test to limit the scope, but neither of those tests is really workable in practice. And so that's why it's so important that Parliament takes this issue seriously and, um, and follows through on the committee recommendation to change the law of Crown copyright. Okay, so we had the copyright review. As part of that review, Crown copyright, I think to the surprise of some members of Parliament, emerged as an issue, was raised by a number of people, and the committee picked up on this and started talking about potential reforms. Does the court itself, in this case, pick up on the notion of we're struggling with this provision, perhaps Parliament ought to take a closer look? When, uh, when a judge says explicitly in her reasons that the provision is a century old, and invites Parliament to reconsider it if it sees fit, that's about as blunt a language as a judge can use in encouraging statutory reform. The uh, parliamentary committee that just completed a thorough review of the Copyright Act in Canada said that the problems with Crown Copyright were a rare point of consensus. In hearings where there was divisiveness over many issues nobody was in favor of keeping this legislative monstrosity the way it is and so the the government recommended the committee recommended changing the law okay so we've got the committee on side with this we've got the witnesses with a consensus on side with this and now based on what you're reading from justice abella for the majority even the supreme court of canada is sending the signal that there's value in taking a closer look at this and, and making changes to better reflect where copyright law stands today. Yeah, I'd go further than to say there's value in doing that. I think it's imperative that this become one of the key um, areas where the industry committee's recommendations are actually implemented. Okay. Now, as uh, assuming we move forward with that reform, then you start going towards kind of the principle principles that underlie copyright. And I know that Justice Abella opens her decision uh, by really reframing or restating where Canadian copyright law stands. Can you talk a bit about that? Because that strikes me as, as yet another important signal coming from the court about how it views balancing copyright and issues surrounding creator rights and users' rights. One of the interesting things about this judgment was how emphatically all of the judges were about the principle of balance. Justice uh, Abella said that it was so integral to the Copyright Act that it needs to be considered not just when we're dealing with fair dealing issues, but when interpreting any provision in the Act. The minority judges emphasized the, the concept of user rights, not just interests or expectations. And in fact, both Justice Abella and Justices uh, Cote and, and Brown talked about the importance of user rights and, and balance being at the heart of the act. So that provides a really useful, um, not just restatement, but but actually um, uh, framing for 
future cases and for for legislative reform going forward. Right. So, it, you know, there has been debate at times over the commitment of the Supreme Court of Canada towards some of those balancing issues. It came up before the uh, before the committee where some have tried to argue that it's more rhetorical when they talk about balance and user rights. This this feels even beyond just the crown copyright side of the case, like a pretty emphatic statement by the, the court as a whole that it remains deeply committed to principles of balance and, in fact, thinks of the user rights side of that balance in ways that extend far beyond even just fair dealing where much of the debate has centered. There's no ambiguity about it. The unanimous judgment in both the majority and minority concurring reasons emphasized balance as being integral to the act, at the heart of the act, and spoke about both creators and users' rights, not just interests or expectations. So that's now beyond doubt or debate, in my view. Right. Well, it's a it's a powerful statement, and as we think of the possibility of future copyright cases coming up before the Supreme Court, it's pretty clear that that's the lens that they are using when they seek to interpret the act and, and issues that come up before them. One other thing that I just wanted to quickly touch on in this case was that there were a number of other interveners. You mentioned your role as part of SIPC to highlight some of the concerns, but there were quite a number of interveners that focused on primary legal documents. You had Canley and some of the library associations recognizing that public access to legal information is critically important. We had a podcast episode on this a uh, number of months back talking to Graham Greenleaf um, from Ostley and talking uh, as well with Canley about the situation in Canada. And so there's a lot of focus on ensuring that the public has access to legal information and concerns that if Crown copyrights interpreted too broadly, it might restrict some of that access. The, we had interveners talking about it. How did the court deal with this, if at all? The issue of ownership of the law, statutes and regulations and judicial decisions, is one of the biggest problems with Crown copyright. And uh, the judges actually picked up on that explicitly, citing to interveners' arguments that raised concerns about anyone, whether it's a private uh, surveyors or the government or the government's partners owning the law. And surveys here, you have to be aware, represent legal boundaries. So they are, in effect, a statement of property law in the province of Ontario. The, um, the judges didn't fully grapple with that issue. Justices Cote and Brown said that they would have to leave that for another day, recognizing the seriousness of the problem, but also understanding that they didn't have the, the, the submissions to deal with the issue thoroughly and properly, another invitation for Parliament to address this question. And so as Parliament considers um, how to implement the Industry Committee's recommendations for fixing Crown copyright, this question of ownership of legal materials should be uh, uh, right in the forefront. This is a question that's coming up right now in other jurisdictions. Uh, some of your listeners may be aware of a case in the United States uh, involving the Georgia Annotated Code and a, um, an online provider called publicresource.org, which is trying to make this um, law more accessible. Uh, the United States Supreme Court has agreed to hear arguments in that case. And so this is a great opportunity for us in Canada to, you know, fix our copyright law in a different forum through Parliament at the same time as this issue is, is really gaining global attention. 
Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's interesting. Crown copyright isn't something that I think those who don't copy, follow copyright closely would think of as a as a core burning issue. And certainly I think the MPs and perhaps even some of the Supreme Court judges might not have initially appreciated the role that it can play across a spectrum of access to information related issues in the scope of copyright. But it's pretty clear that we now have essentially the legislative branch by way of the uh, the, the, the review, copyright review, the judicial branch, and we've got the broader public saying this is something that needs fixing. Um, and as we look to a new government post-election who may be looking for easy wins on issues like copyright, this seems like an obvious place to turn. That's right. And uh, Crown copyright is not an obscure issue by any means. In, in fact, it's only going to grow in importance. As we move forward in an era of big data, much of it collected or disseminated by governments, uh, digitization projects involving public-private partnerships. The question of who gets the copyright in these circumstances is enormously important and something that uh, the Supreme Court has been clear uh, Parliament now needs to deal with. Right. Well, we'll be certainly following closely and see if Parliament does accept that invitation, in a sense, to act. Jeremy, thanks so much for joining uh, me Thanks on for podcast. having me, Michael. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. Mm-hmm.